1: So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this
0: geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com.
2: The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. Hello. Happy Tuesday. It's only Tuesday. And welcome to the importance of motor and language learning for effective therapy with my OT partner in crime, Karen McWaters. For those of you that are have been with us for the this will be our third installment of this little first bite series. And to get the boring stuff out of the way. My financial disclosures are that I receive a salary from Cincinnati Children's Hospital and receive royalties from speech therapy PD for first bite and other presentations. Non-financial disclosures. I volunteer for Feeding Matters. I'm sometimes a phageo outreach project, and I'm a contributor to Michelle Dawson's book, Chasing the Swallow.
3: And I, my name is Karen McWaters. I've been on the other two episodes. If you want to know where I am and what I do, we introduced ourselves two times. So I think we don't need to do it a third, but I get paid through my job at Georgia State University, as well as my consultant job with ATS kids in Greenville, South Carolina, as well as through uh, my guest appearances on
2: this podcast. And I think that's it. And For those of you that are tuning in, um, either listening to the podcast or just tuning in and haven't listened to the other two episodes, we encourage you to do that as well, because it lays a lot of the groundwork for things we're going to be talking about today, because it all kind of layers on top of each other. And this is something that the parallels between language development and motor development are something that Karen and I have a lot of conversations about, because it's something that we... Have noticed in parallel with a lot of the patients that we worked with, and then started to put together these ideas and dive into the research as to why we were seeing these things align very similarly in regards to the uh, the children that we were working with and their development. And a lot of what we'll talk about today involves learning about praxis. Um as well as language and we'll go into what praxis is and the stages of praxis or the development of praxis because it we play a much larger role as speech pathologists in that development than we might realize so i'll let karen start with the stages of praxis because she explains it so much better than i do mm-hmm. but Yeah. That's kind of where we want to start because it's important. You know, we don't learn about, we learn about apraxia in regards to speech development, but similar, but different in regards to the broad, apraxia is much more specific than when we're looking at praxis in general.
3: Yeah. And there's a lot of words that get thrown around in pediatric therapy, generally that have that kind of, that, praxis part of it thrown into the word so like you'll hear OTs talk about dyspraxia we all talk about apraxia of speech but then also apraxia like in an adults with like brain injuries and stuff like that where yeah we get we throw these words around a lot and it's worth kind of diving into what we mean by what is praxis and then understanding that like the word dis means a dysfunction in the way it's developed. So that little that little front part of that word carries a lot of meaning and then it's worth understanding what praxis is. But in relation to speech language pathology and speech therapy, please know that like when we talk about this, we're I'm gonna present to you the research that OTs have done on body-based praxis. And what Aaron and I have researched and found to be clinically true as well is that language is just really a symbolic representation of what happens with your body. So we're going to go through the concrete motor version of Praxis first, and then we're going to talk about how that parallels in language development and how motor development and language development is really intrinsically linked. And just how clear some of the research is about how you're, you learn first with your body and then you learn to play around with those ideas symbolically um, in language and in cognitive development. So let me explain a little bit about what praxis is. Praxis is a uniquely human ability that allows our bodies to conceive of Organize and carry out a sequence of unfamiliar actions. So that means that in order for a task or activity to have to require praxis, it must be novel. The good thing is, is that we really truly never do the same thing twice. Even our daily routines, there's a little nuances in it. So we're pulling on this ability of adapt adaptation frequently to just get through our daily lives. And so when we start talking about development of that adaptability, you will hear from a sensory language perspective, people talk about that ability to organize and carry out unfamiliar actions as an adaptive response. An adaptive response and praxis oftentimes are used interchangeably, but praxis is the process of creating those responses that are adaptive. And what we know is that if there's an issue in the process of developing a response, that's what makes the response not adaptive to the scenario, right? Whether there's a difference in sensory processing or there's not enough experience in order to modify a plan to make it adaptive to the situation, The process of creating a response that fits and is functional is Praxis. So with that being said, I will also highlight the researchers who do a lot of this work. Their names are Teresa May Benson. And then she's the big forerunner in the OT Praxis world. She publishes a lot on Praxis. She also provides a fantastic continuing ed course that I would recommend any discipline take about the neurology of your brain and how this process of forming responses to our dynamic and changing environment really happens. But she identifies four major stages in praxis. And then there's other stages within that, but the four major ones are ideation, planning, execution, and feedback. And it creates a cycle that that goes back into the first stage. So I'll go through those four areas and kind of define them really quickly. And then we'll put it into like a case-based example to kind of explain how all of those stages work. So ideation is conceptualizing the goal of the activity or, or plan and coming up with a rough plan. So that includes the initiation phase of any sort of movement or activity. It means you've got a goal in mind and you've got a basic outline of how to get to there but then the planning phase that comes next is really filling in the details of our brain our body and what to do with our body in order to reach that destination when we talk about body-based praxis and motor planning We really talk about that planning and sequencing phase as being motor planning. And you'll hear OTs throw that word around a lot. And sometimes they refer to that as the planning phase and the execution phase as well, because the execution phase means that you're putting that plan into action. So if the plan has flaws, that's when you're really going to see them pop up. And then there's the feedback portion. So you have the idea, you come up with the plan, you execute it, and then you have the feedback portion, which is like, did that work? That's your brain's process of like, did I accomplish my goal? Um, Some people refer to this stage as the adaptive response generator. If it didn't work, your brain develops a hypothesis about what to do differently. But I will also point out that that feedback section really heavily depends on sensory processing. So if you don't have reliable use of your sensory systems, it's really challenging to know if it worked or didn't work. Did you accomplish your goal? And also to understand uh, what to do differently next time. So go back to the, the first episode about sensory processing, to understand a little bit about that framework because all four of those stages really heavily depend on sensory processing. But particularly that feedback stage is really where you can observe differences in sensory processing and integration. I will also say that our motor responses, what we understand theoretically about motor development is that there's this experimentation phase where our ideation becomes dependent on our understanding of feedback and of observation of feedback through interaction with our caregiver. And so early, early on, before you can truly have well-formed ideation, that feedback phase really starts first. And Erin, I I think that you should probably talk a little bit about like communication as relates to that. Because that's where we see it happen a lot really early on is with differentiated baby cries right so that feedback from mom I want you to talk about that a little bit and
2: that's how like so early on and I a lot of people I used to explain it to you know when I worked in earlier dimensional a lot and you see an oT and a PT come in and so often you feel like oT and PT it looks like they're doing the same thing but they're working their end goals and what they're focusing on are different, but the groundwork is the same. And early on in that development of attachment and communicating what i that first basis of communication are involuntary behaviors. So how you develop the understanding of what those behaviors and those motor plans mean is by the response of your caregiver. So when I, like Karen said, do a certain cry. My caregiver knows I'm hungry and they feed me and I feel better. So I understand that that cry is going to get that response. Or when, you know, what it, I focus on this a lot with feeding, with, you know, a lot of the infants that I see, their hands splay, their eyes get wide. This communicates I'm stressed take the bottle away from me. This is too much. And then that's how I build understanding that my motor movements have meaning. And so what Karen and I talk so much about is how as speech pathologists, we play such a large role in this development of praxis. And we might not even understand when we undermine it because that ideation piece is both cognitive and development of communication, because so many of the children we work with might not have all of the skills to have an idea, execute it, Mm -hmm. and then plan it, execute it, and then build on it. So they need to use communication and they need to problem solve with somebody else in a social situation to be able to grow these ideas and to be able to learn from them. And how often do we in sessions have an idea for them? They do something that's different and we stop them right there. Mm-hmm. So right away, they have an idea and we're stopping this loop of building praxis. And like Karen said, it is very rare that we do something that's exactly the same every time. So unless we're going to put a kid in a room that looks exactly like ours with the exact same voice and the exact same stimuli and the exact same positioning, we're setting them up for failure if we don't allow them to use their own ideas as well. And that is, in communication, every sentence I'm spewing out, unless I'm reading from a script is slightly different than what I've said before. And so to develop these new ideas with language, they have to have their own ideas of how they want to say it. And so if we're so strict about exactly how we want a kid to imitate something and exactly how they need to say it, we're not making them adaptable for the world that they're living in and they're not building this loop. And to the point about their sensory system, we have to also understand that to know what feedback we're giving them. Because if we're giving them feedback that they're not processing because of the way their sensory system works, then that's not helpful. So I do need to understand their sensory system, like Karen said from episode one, to give them the right feedback to go through that loop again and build off of it as well. But there's communication in every part of that.
3: And I would also say, too, if you cut the loop short, it's really hard to actually gather data on what they're able to do because... It's not until they get to that feedback stage that you can actually see if they understood what they did or not, right? So, and that's really what matters for creating change. You don't get to walk with them everywhere to cue them. They have to understand the differences and the nuances in their performance, whether that's a communication ability or a motor ability, And how that lines up with the environment around them, right? So it's all about supporting their independent use. of. of, Here's a situation, right? The situation is I need to put my shoes on, right? The idea is the shoes need to go on my feet. The kid knows the shoes need to end up on their feet. The question is, do they have a rough plan of how to put the shoes on their feet? they may have a rough plan, right? Like put my foot in the shoe. Well, how often do we have kids and this, oof, this happened all the time in the clinic, right? Where like they put their foot in the shoe and then they just start walking off and their foot is still halfway out of the shoe. What did that just tell me? They had an idea the shoe goes on my foot. I put my foot in the shoe and to them and their feedback, they've planned pick up my foot, put it in the shoe. They executed. pick up my foot, put it in the shoe. And then they start walking off as though the task is completed. And the feedback of like, oh, the shoe's not on my foot, it's only halfway on my foot, did not process with them. That is more valuable to me clinically than how much assistance did they need to put that shoe on, right? And if I jump in and help too early, then I don't actually know what they can and can't register as completed task or as effective or if their brain gets overloaded by other stimuli and so then they tune out that their foot is halfway Mm -hmm. in their shoe right and and these are the kids too that like you know They're always on the move and they trip over their own feet and they get you try and get them out to their car and they fall in on the pavement and skin their knee because they didn't realize their foot was halfway in their shoe. So you end up in this much more dysfunctional situation because there was a piece of feedback that was missing for them. But if you cut that short or if you provide too many cues, it doesn't create a generalizable response on the other hand. We also have to talk about scaffolding and cueing and making sure that you provide, like Aaron said, the right cues for their sensory system for them to learn that Mm -hmm. independent, that independent practice, that independent problem solving. So it's a real balancing act between, you know, gas and break. When do I step in to provide support? And when do I back out to watch what they can do? Mindfulness Mm -hmm. of, how much gas you're giving into the situation, how many
2: cues is really, I think the key in that. Yeah. And being comfortable with spending time, like this, when I learned about this too, it helps you realize the importance of, as floor time would say, weight, watch, wonder, because you need to first understand what their brain is doing before you jump in. Because if I'm already giving all of these cues and all of the support, it's harder for me to figure out where to back down. And harder to, sometimes you can scaffold backwards. I think speech, nothing against speech therapists. I think we often will jump very quickly to giving all of this support as opposed to taking time to let them figure it out first. And sometimes the most passive way that I will cue, whether they're Consciously listening or not, you know, in that situation where the child put their feet in the shoes and walked off, as they're walking, I'd be like, oh, my shoes aren't all the way on my feet. Like giving them, in a joking, playful way, some language to describe what's happening. Because whether they recognize it or not, their shoes are not fully on their feet. You're just stating something that's happening in their voice that maybe will make its way to you know or even in a much less sequential example if i have a child that i have a lot of children on my caseload that are very medically complex that are working on tastes of food maybe they can't self-feed maybe they have a lot of children with cardiac conditions right now and we're just trying to support that motor movement and my one of the things i will say is always use the exact same cue as much as you can at the beginning so that they're understanding what's going on so whether it's eat or bite or whatever family wants to say so you're giving them something to support that development of what's happening with their body yeah
3: yeah the other thing that i will say sometimes i'll give a cue that doesn't have it's an emotional cognitive cue without language also known as a sound effect because sound effects really do allow you to bring attention and pair some sensory sensations together without overloading the cognitive part of their brain with processing the language so like for example the the example of the kid in the shoe if they didn't put their foot all the way in sometimes I'll be like ah, 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 ah. Oh, my foot. Right. Like, which is a lot more of like a multi-sensory way of expressing the tactile feeling of their foot, trying to cram into the shoe. And at the same time, giving that meaning through a sound effect. Right. Rather than. And that's a lot more like from the emotional centers of your brain and less from like the cognitive language centers of your brain. So it just pulls a different cognitive load along with it, which can sometimes be helpful. Yeah. When we talk though about like motor and language development, and when we talk about language specifically, we're really talking about language being like a symbolic form of those stages. Right. So like, first I have an idea of what I want to communicate. Then I plan how to communicate that then I execute it and then I get feedback. Did I explain that? Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like the message, the mode of communication, the delivery of that, and then feedback from the other party of like did that work? Don't know. You Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. Especially for and this is where we're going to talk about this too. We're going to go through typical development and how typical development motor movements lead to language milestones. But we're also going to talk about our our gestalt learners because they learn language that way. But clinically, I've also seen them learn play skills and motor skills that way. And sometimes their language is a window into their learning style that you wouldn't otherwise be able to harness. The other thing I will say quickly is that when children have a limited range of how to play or how to use their body, you often find that they have a limited vocabulary in how to communicate meaning Mm -hmm. and needs as well. And that's why speech and OT end up working together. And this is also
2: why it's not very helpful to use flashcards of actions because also in a picture, they're not actually moving. So if you read, like, (laughs) if you really think about it, like sometimes you'll show a kid a picture of like jumping, but they're not, like, you have to understand that very symbolically, like that multi-sensory, if we're trying to, neurons that wire together, fire together, if we're trying to really build that depth of understanding and memory, that emotional, like Karen said, connection can increase their memory of it. And that motor movement can also increase their memory because you're pulling those things together. And if a ch- this is why we need to understand motor development, because if you're seeing a child that has difficulties with playing with a toy in different ways, they're probably going to have difficulties with the understanding that different words can mean the same thing or that a word can mean different things because it is so connected. So I'm also going to use these strategies in my sessions to think about the language that I'm trying to work on, and then think about what we can do with our body to Mm -hmm. also to build that understanding, because that's the most effective way for them to learn it.
3: Yeah. I love the way that you think about how your language impacts what activities they participate in so that you can use more of your language to help them understand what their body is doing and and feeling. OTs think a lot about how can we expose them to different activities and novelty and see how they adapt. We think about that, but we don't think about you know, our half of the deal, which is you're there with them the entire time and using your your interpretation through language to help guide them. I don't think that OTs always think about narrating for them, like what you you just mm-hmm. explained. When we talk about motor development, though, let's go back and remember that we're talking about like when we go through this, we're going to explain some some milestone behaviors that you see at different ages and stages. And what the research has started to point out is that the motor milestone will happen first. And then subsequently there is a communication milestone that mirrors very closely what they did with their body. And so when you look at a list of motor milestones, I encourage you to think deeper than just the surface level checkbox behavior to think about what may be required by that body or that brain to be able to achieve that behavior because those are the observable checkboxes but the soft skills that underlie them is what leads to those that development so next week, we're going to talk a little bit about activity analysis and what that is because that's a Thursday, Sorry, Thursday, Thursday, not next week, next episode. episode. <laughs> we're going to talk about, yeah, activity analysis, which is an OT thing that we do to break down what an activity or a task is and what goes into it to understand, you know, some of the softer, t- tease it apart understand what kind of components underlie it. So when we talk about these milestones, please be thinking deeper than walk at one, talk at two. We're going to be talking about like, why is it that they parallel communication? Because there's a central characteristic of that milestone, something that that brain learns from that body-based milestone that then they apply into communication and use symbolically to communicate. So they take it out of context and and use the meaning that they learned. So, generally speaking, though, the as the complexity of motor skills increases, the complexity of pre-linguistic skills increase. So, and that's why you walk at one and you talk at two, right? Your motor skills get more complex, and then language skills come a little bit later. But the communication milestones that go along with that pre-verbal language in typical development are really closely following behind all these motor milestones. And that's not something that I was taught in OT school was not, I didn't learn the parallels between those two. And I know, you know, OT schools and speech schools, they only have two years with you. They don't have forever, but it's so helpful.
2: And that's also why I will say from, and this is just a quick side note is that Because that walk it one, talk it two, a lot of that is building that sense of agency that my body can do something for me and then my communication can do something for me. And so if you have a child that you're working with that has communication differences, I also would encourage you to be cautious about taking away any of that body autonomy and agency that they have just to work on language because that can be very traumatic for a child when they don't feel as confident in their communication skills and you can develop both at the same time. So taking away motor doesn't mean you're going to build that communication when they start to understand that I can have more affect and emotion and connection with the way I talk, they're going to choose that. But that's just something I'm, I am very passionate about and still allowing them to use gestures and movement and whatever they need to do to communicate and not take it away in hopes that they're going to talk instead. Right. That's just right. Well,
3: and frankly, if you see a
2: child with
3: language or communication delays, I would argue that the majority of the time, I'm not going to say hundred percent of the time, but I'll go out on a limb and say, you know, 95 at least percent of the time, they're going to have individual differences in the way that they learn with their body. And that may not have red flagged someone early enough until they get to the symbolic level of communication. But often, if you break it down, you're going to find issues deeper than just that they can't write a paragraph, right? Let's go to like typical development and kind of outline how these things are connected. So At seven months, a child will um, go through this exploratory phase where they shake and rattle things a lot. So they've learned to reach and grasp things. And now they're learning that when their hand moves and they shake a rattle, that a sound is made. Literature says that two to three weeks later, after this explosive exploration with cause and effect and timing of muscle groups and sounds differentiating the temporal nature of sounds literally two to three weeks later after this hand play with a rattle they start to do a reduplicated babble so it's the same action just moved to vocal cords rather than their hands right like that alternating timing of muscles that cause and effect is the same thing just moved from their hand to their communication system so it's it's really cool to know that there's such tight parallels and that's not the only one either at a little over one to a little over two a child will, like, be able to place a bead into a container or pull objects apart. And then at two years old, they start to be able to string beads. While they're learning those things with their body, they start to learn to pair objects, understand what objects allows them to do with them, which is a knowledge of affordances, and then make specific meeting with those objects. And then right around that age, two, Erin, what happens communication-wise? those words together all of a sudden they make like specific meaning to sound right they have specific meaning with objects and then bam all those sounds have specific meanings as well Mm -hmm. it's a really cool exploratory phase that's why toddlers are my favorite personally
2: well and like but think about for those of you that work in early intervention especially like Karen said, a lot of kids will get flagged because they're not communicating or they're not talking. And then you watch them and you're like, they only know how to do one thing with this object. And so much of their play is like running around in circles and they're not truly engaged. And and so you watch and you're like, and then you work with them and if you have this knowledge, you can start to put that in place, but you're like, they really need to see OT too. Like they really need some help with their overall motor development. And and so often I think when, you know, if kids are walking and like, once they get to that stage, like parents don't, it's not as noticeable about like what else might be going on with their motor planning until they maybe get to school. So we, with this knowledge, not only can Help with our sessions and help the children we work with learn language and communication. But it can also help children get other supports they need with OT because, unfortunately, sometimes OTs do so much that then people don't know what they do. Like I just feel like no one knows what we do, like, and we just accepted it. Uh huh. But I mean,
3: uh, I had a I had a family member recently asked me what I did with children why are you an occupational therapist with children? They don't have a job. And I was like, yeah, about that. No, I mean, really nobody knows what we do and that's okay. Um, But yes, there are are things that you guys as speech therapists could help flag um, and pull in some supports for their overall learning, not just their language and communication learning. For us, oftentimes those children then have social-emotional challenges because they're frustrated with the learning process overall. And they're the ones who have meltdowns or are sensory seekers or are having classroom behavior challenges. And they get a speech referral because they have trouble with pronouns, but they're also the ones falling out of their chair during handwriting, right? And, or melting to the floor with losing a game, um, and it's because that learning process, those praxis stages, have some. It's just something gumming up the gears, right? Like, and finding what that is, and working together to, to clean it up and oil that machine
2: is is our goal. Well, and Michelle asked about um some other specific motor tasks to think about if we're in early intervention, and I'll answer my perspective on that and then let Karen answer and I think what Karen and I's what we want to get across a lot is that it these things that are developing in parallel are indicative of a more a broader learning so for example the being able to put those two objects together to do something that Demonstrates maybe the ability of being able to put two words together or thinking about how I can do different things with, or I can do the same action with different objects. So, Karen and I shared a patient that we worked on the idea of pull Mm -hmm. up a slide. Karen specifically, I just used the language and there I followed along. I learned from this scenario, but with like a rope and a hula hoop and a pool noodle. And so, What we were trying to get there was not, do I know I can pull with a pool noodle? What Karen was trying to get with working on that was to understand that objects and their affordances, what we can use them for, and then to problem solve so that he has the adaptability to understand. And sometimes in that scenario, that took a very long time. We worked on that for weeks. But what we taught him was that he can problem solve to use different things to create a similar solution. So it wasn't necessarily pull and it wasn't necessarily the exact objects we were working on. It was that overarching motor that, that cognitive pattern in his brain to understand how to problem solve that. And so that was a big part. If you're working with a child, And they're having trouble coming up with new ideas, like say you're working with, and this is a play thing. We talk about play all the time. This is when play is such a great tool. But if you're playing with a kid and you feel like you're always, they're doing the same activity over and over again, and they, they have a hard time if you bring something new in, like say I'm pushing a train around in a circle, but then, oh no, something's in the way of the train, we call that a playful obstruction. Can they work through a playful obstruction? Can they add another sequence? Can the train go in a circle? And then maybe I add a, a bridge to it and it can go up and down the bridge as opposed to going around in a circle. So, and in that instance, if they can't do more than one sequence, they're probably going to have a hard time saying more than one word. So. Yeah. And it's, I will
3: yep, go ahead. Oh, no, I was about to say the same thing. If you see somebody repeat the same play sequence over and over and over and over again, and there, there is no adaptability or change in it, oftentimes that's because they can't ideate a change in it. And, and a, and a change in it may make them frustrated because they can't ideate how to solve that. So, Gently introducing playful obstructions is a great way to check on these stages of praxis and just see, like, what happens if I throw you a curveball? Can you problem solve it? Or does it disrupt you so much because you don't have a pattern of that? My other giant red flag, and that's because there's some literature published on this too, children who have poor ideational Skills like play, ideational skills also have a difficult time with narrative explanation of events. So, if a child specifically uses can't tell you what happened in what order, if they start to tell you a story and it's like, whoa, I don't understand what just happened, which you speech therapists get that a lot, that's a red flag that they probably cannot order and organize a sequence of actions to then be able to symbolically communicate that order and sequence through their words. It's not that they don't have the words, it's that they can't organize it temporarily or spatially. The other red flag I will say is that kids who only use the verbs put, go, and play, those three verbs are really, really common. When you ask a kid what they wanna do, they'll say, oh, I wanna play. And then you say, play what? And they can't tell you more. Or if you ask them what to do with something, they're like, oh, you put it over there. Or, you know, they get frustrated and they say, just go. But they don't tell you to run, to jump, to swing. There's no descriptor in the verb that they use. Oftentimes, it's because they don't have more than one association with that word. And so they assume you can read their mind about like what you want them to do. But they don't have specific meaning um, and I separate ideas of what that play looks like. So going back to creating motor-based learning experiences and then giving them language to create that specific meaning is what really makes a big difference. But if you hear kids, if you're taking a language sample and you hear kids only use those three verbs, get your friendly OT to come check them out because that probably means they're having praxis challenges. Mm -hmm. At least in my clinical experience, it's like 10 out of 10 times. There's something, like I said, kind of gumming up the works of that praxis system. Erin, that kind of, oh, 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 oh. I did want to kind of share this one quote from this article we read. It was by um, a researcher named Iverson, which- We love her. We love her. Erin found her and we love her. And she is right.
2: at University of Pittsburgh, so we love her oh. even.
3: Okay, well, we love her even more than. Erin went to Pitt, if you if you didn't know. So she said language involves a unique constellation of interrelated cognitive and symbolic capacities that come together at one point in time. So it means you have to understand it cognitively to be able to translate it symbolically all in one point in time. So in order to understand it, oh, what are the three verbs? Sorry, Terry, usually put, play, and go. If those are the three that they use the majority of the time pretty red flaggy so you have to understand concepts cognitively which means you have to be able to interpret them from a sensory perspective that's often where you run into issues because children have a hard time interpreting what has happened to them what like stimuli happened in what order when you have difficulties processing and integrating information it's hard to know did you hear that sound and then the lightning flash, right? Did thunder happen and then the lightning? Or did it all happen at the same time? Or did your brain reverse it and pay attention to the lightning and then the thunder? Really hard to process a sequence of events when your sensory systems are unreliable. So again, language involves a unique constellation of interrelated cognitive and symbolic capacities that come together at one point in time. I just thought it was so beautiful that she compared it to a constellation. Um, I love thinking about how you can draw connections between things to develop a unique constellation of that child's language. Their symbolic understandings and their cognitive understanding, and you can kind of map out the way that they, their language and how they communicate about their world. It's just a beautiful thing. But that means you have to get into their brain. Mm-hmm. Oh, you have to get on the floor with them. You have to feel what they feel to be able to understand. Yep.
2: Oh, the amount of times that Karen and I are like laying on the floor with a kid looking at something or like doing whatever they're doing with their body, just to see why that might look a certain way to them or feel a certain way to them. I've learned so much about just the world. I was thinking about it the other day in a way of like, especially a lot of the autistic kids that we work with, like, you know, those, the pictures you that people post on Facebook or like the ones that they used to use in like psychology testing where it's like, what does this picture look like? And like, we were trained to look at a picture. And then once you see it, you can't unsee it. And like, how lucky are we that we get to work with kids that see it differently and we get to see it in a way that we never have before because we were just told that this is what it's supposed to be. And that's the way our eyes always looked at it. So like, I just think that's cool.
3: Before we get into a little bit about gestalt learning and and motor learning and and gestalts, I truly think. It's so beautiful that when you engage in the system of like, I wonder if, right, if you start approaching your sessions with, I wait, I watch, I wonder. You learn so much about the world and, and you learn about why a child's play is purposeful, which is really important because even though it doesn't serve a purpose that you may observe if you join in it you may find the purpose for that child so it's just such a beautiful opportunity to to find their meaning so that you can help stretch and understand their meaning to the wider world right because when you have unique sensory constellations, it means you make unique language constellations or communication constellations. I don't even really like saying language because it implies that then it's all verbal. It's It's not. You develop these unique ways of communicating about your world. And that means that sometimes if you join in what looks like a stem behavior, you may find out why it's happening. I mean, I can't tell you the number of visual stems I've joined in on and been like, oh, pretty cool. Who knew that the light looked like that if you went upside down and you put your fingers in a certain way? It actually made like, especially with fluorescent lights, there's a lot of like play with the like refractory spectrum that children autistic children will do with their hands and their eyes. And they're actually like, if you, if you join in, you may actually see a little bit of how they're seeing it as well, which is important because we all can only operate from the base that we understand. You
0: can't.
2: it It gives you freedom. I think within your sessions to feel like when you work, when you're focused on these capacities and these, bigger cognitive processes within the context of what's authentic to the child. It gives you a lot more freedom. And honestly, it feels better. Like it just feels more joyful. And it feels like, okay, I don't, I don't have to force them to do something that doesn't align with how I feel or how they feel. It, it, when I started to understand this on a deeper level and understand that there's so much neurobiology behind it, like a lot of this isn't just us saying it because like the way that their brain is developing and processing this information, you're getting so much more bang for your buck than by having a a lesson plan where they need to do this exact activity in this exact way, because it's just not creating the same pathways for them. And that's why it can be so frustrating. And you're like, why are they not making progress? Because it's not connecting the same things in their brain that when they're creating their own ideas, it is so.
3: Yeah. And the beautiful thing about play from an OT perspective is it's the only occupation that the meaning is determined By the user, I mean, and a little bit, all of the occupations are that way. But ultimately, like dressing yourself, there's certain societal norms that, like, you have to put on pants before you go into the grocery store, right? So it's not that is determined a lot of the times by society, and then it's personally meaningful because we're finding our role in society but play is the only thing where it can truly just be that child's understanding of the world and how they find joy in it and i love using that as a method of intervening which means that when children have individual differences in the way they learn like gestalt learning um it's really important to understand what meaning they're getting out of it right erin you want to review the like gestalt stages and then we can talk about how that applies to like motor these mm-hmm. stuff, because I feel like since we're talking to speech therapists, let's jump off of what you guys know, and then we'll apply it into the motor world.
2: And there's technically there's six stages. I think the most important are the four stages. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this because it's been a very, I'm grateful for how much speech pathologists are starting to talk about just language processing and get, and build education and understanding. But the main idea and, and what, we know is that they're processing language in these larger chunks. So instead of an analytic learner that's going, you know, ball, blue ball, go blue ball. They're I don't know why that was the the color whatever. They're they're processing not only in chunks but what the focus often is, we call them the intonation babies because they're processing the emotion and the melody behind what you're saying more so than the word specifically. And a lot of times these, we will call them scripts, the scripts that they're connecting to and that they're imitating are scripts that mean something to them and that they relate to for whatever reason that be, whether they felt the emotion. This is why parents come to me and they're like, yeah, he said this four letter word the other day. And I'm like, yeah, because when you said it, you meant it. And then when they felt that same emotion, they said, this is the right word for this. I know it. And so that's why they repeat those words. And so we're going to start with delayed echolalia. So sometimes it might happen. You'll see some kids that will imitate right away, but most of the time you'll hear them say a longer script some scripts are one word, it depends, but it could be down the road. We had Karen and I shared a patient who would always tell on his ABA therapist unintentionally, mm-hmm. because he'd be he'd come and he'd be like, say stamps, say stamps. And usually he would say it when it related to how he felt. So if we were doing something and he felt unsuccessful. He may have scripted something from his ABA session where he also felt unsuccessful. So it wasn't the script had more meaning behind how he was feeling. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to get to mitigation. So you mix and match scripts. So, and that's really cool because you'll hear like, I'm trying to think of a really good example, but they'll take two scripts and maybe they'll take a script and add on a different words. So if they always say, let's go home when they're leaving somewhere, they might start to say, let's go car or let's go, they might start to put on a new word to start to build new meaning from that script that had. And what we talked about with motor learning, it, it can be confusing if you don't understand that they're just all language processor because say they're doing one activity in one sequence, but all their scripts are one script. If let's go home is just, I'm leaving, but you hear let's go home if you don't understand their motor development you might not understand that that is a chunk as well and like i have one kid who everything that lights up is flashlight mm-hmm. so it's that's his concept and that's what's so beautiful when we pair language and start to really just look at the language they're providing us because it gives so much information so what that tells me is that what he's picking up on these objects and these things are that light that's coming from them, not necessarily other affordances or parts of them. And then after mitigations, you might start to see those single words or two word combinations and that's stage three. And then in stage four is where you start to hear like original phrases. And they often say, you'll know they're getting into stage four when the grammar isn't correct, because if they're scripting, usually the grammar is correct because it's this big chunk. So then when you start to hear words and the verb tense is inaccurate or the pronoun isn't the one that there, you know, was originally used, you're like, oh, they're putting those words together. And it's so cool. What I will often say about just language processors. And I tell parents this: if they're immediately imitating you, it usually means that they trust you. Because it means that they have learned that you understand them and what you're saying is probably related to what they're feeling. So I would take that and just be aware of that because I don't ever take that lightly. If a patient is trusting me to that level, I'm very, I'm always very careful with what language I use because I know it can impact the way that they think about themselves and about what's happening. But even more so when they're imitating me immediately because I'm like, oh, I earned your trust, like, I have to really think about what words I'm giving you because they mean a lot to you because of our experience.
3: Yeah. And there's some really cool research about how word retrieval is really linked to sensory motor nodes. So understanding what that word means is embedded into a sensory motor experience I had a kid, there's a kid that Aaron and I both treated. And the first time he communicated to me that he was bored or disliked what I was asking him to do, he didn't tell me that. He was almost in tears repeating five miles an hour. Lightning McQueen needs to go 15 miles an hour. And I didn't understand what he was saying. And I, I mean, I'll admit to it. I pushed him for like 30 minutes because I just didn't understand what he was trying to communicate. I went home and watched cars because I knew he was interested in it. I was like, "What is he trying to get to? I don't remember this part of the movie because usually P.S. If you have kids that are into certain movies and they're pulling scripts from it, go watch the movie. It will tell you so much about it, about what they are intending to communicate. Turns out that's what Lightning McQueen is grumbling under his breath while he's repaving the road that he destroyed. And he's bored and angry that he's being asked to do like a menial task that's boring to him. Turns out that's what that kid was communicating when I asked him to do an obstacle course two more times before we went somewhere. He hated that idea. And that's what he was trying to tell me. And I just couldn't pick up on the meaning of it because I didn't understand the the gestalt, the script that came along with that. But I will also tell you that those stages that delayed echolalia or delayed repetition, the mitigation, the single words, and then the the novel combinations, that same thing happens in your motor system. So you may have a delayed repetition of an entire action or activity, which is why kids repeat activities over and over and over again, because they're just trying to repeat it to understand it and then mitigating when you see a kid have two activities that they do. Try combining them because you're more likely to expand their understanding and meaning by combining them before you add in new elements, because you're just doing that mitigating thing with actions rather than words. So, there was a kid that we both treated that loved to ride his bike and he also loved speed bumps. So I put speed bumps in the hallway. So he had to ride his bike over the speed bumps. And then eventually that bike got called his red Jeep, even though the bike was green and he understood that I was comparing the bike to his car that he liked to ride the speed bumps. in. so it's just, you have to combine those two gestalt Mm -hmm. activities together To expand meaning and to really play around with symbolism because you've taken something familiar and given it a new context, which means you've enriched the meaning while working off of a sensory motor node
2: that they understand. And to use their interest, like this is why. Also, I mean, we Karen and I shared a patient where, like, for months we did Mario, and for months we did Cars, and then for months we did Nightmare Before Christmas because those were the things that he was interested in. And if you think about it. If you're understanding something in a chunk, then oftentimes you can expand within there so that they can learn these cognitive processes within something that they're really interested in. And the fact that we know that a lot of our autistic kids that we work with are just all language processors, we also know that they don't learn as well through repetition in the same way. So instead of repeating the same task, it's a, I'm going to learn this process within this chunk. And then I might be able to carry it over to the same chunk, as opposed to some other children we work with, where it might be like, here is the, I'm working on, I'm um, and I'm going to do sequencing with this activity. I'm going to do sequencing with this activity. and I'm, do sequencing, with this activity, and I'm do sequencing with this activity. You're going to need to stay in the same activity and work on different things so that they can understand the depth of that activity, because that's the other thing. Our gestalt language processors are often very, very deep feelers and deep thinkers. That's why they relate to these emotions. And so you're going to have to put on your, like, I'm going to pretend to be a crocodile hat, or I'm going to, you know, and it has to be authentic. Like they know when you're pretending to be having a good time. They know when they're angry and you're like, oh, yeah, that stinks. Like, no, they like, you need to bring the emotion, bring the intensity to a tune. Like we talked about with them. And that's when they're going to pick up on the results that you're modeling. Otherwise it doesn't mean anything. So, for example,
3: Aaron and I worked with a patient who loved anything that had to do, really all I think about him, when I think about him, I think about the color red. Because anything that had to do with, like, Angry Birds, or, like, Emergency Vehicles, or he loved Rudolph for a period of time, and Spider-Man, like, just everything he liked was, like, red. Which related more to, like, his arousal, and then also, like, his social like his emotional processing but anyway after months years actually two years of playing around with the gestalt of fire trucks coming to the rescue because that's what he understood I mean we set different block buildings on fire we use different vehicles as fire trucks we would find ropes to be hoses or we would find a straw that could be a hose and we could blow the piece of paper off or the fire off of the building you know just playing around with all of these elements, I then started to introduce a different action that the same emergency vehicles did, which is save rescued, I mean, stuck animals, right? Like the cat stuck up the tree. What are we going to do? We call the firefighters, right? So me and the firefighter would go rescue all these animals. Well, one day the animal got stuck way up too high on the playground and Uh, the firefighter couldn't reach the animal. And I was like, Oh no, what are we going to do? And he looked at me and then he mitigated in a new gestalt that I didn't know he had. He looked at me and he said, cowboy. And I sat there now, granted, I've worked with this child for a long time. So I understood when he said cowboy, he was referring to the gestalt of like cowboys and what they do. I looked at him and said, You're right. We could lasso him. Let's go get a rope and see if we could lasso him. So he brought in an action that's not in that gestalt from a different one. He mitigated in a different one to replace it. And it was really cool to see him refer to it as like this term when really he meant the action. But again, he didn't have the term lasso. He just knew it was associated with cowboy. So all he could say was cowboy. So it really matters to like understand how these children's brains connect because then I was able to tell him, oh yeah, you're right. We need a lasso. The next time something got stuck like that, he said, we need a rope. So still couldn't come up with the term lasso, but more specific meaning and something that was more
2: generalizable. So it was really cool to be able to see that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's and I think the, the big point too, that like, we've talked about today is like, we have this job and this role to help our children feel understood in the way that they problem solve and learn. And so if them were able from like my standpoint, if I'm able to understand how they learn and then Karen gave him this language that he could then use because she was the only one that was going to understand that that's what he meant by cowboy. But then when she gave him the language of rope, Somebody else could have figured that out the next time. So he could have problem solved with another person to help him expand his social circle and expand his connection with other people. So that's really the biggest thing is like understanding the children we work with on a deeper level so that they can, they deserve to have these big ideas and play and enjoy. And and that's a, a really cool thing that we get to do.
3: Well, and Erin Aaron, Aaron is really good about watching a kid and see them start to initiate an action, that ideation phase, and she'll go, oh, I have an idea, which even if the kid can't process all of those words, her tone is so curious and upbeat and it mirrors the way that they are excitedly initiating an action. And I love watching her label that in kids because they oftentimes then start to script Aaron, like the ones that we have treated together. They'll Mm -hmm. come back from speech uh, a couple weeks later and they'll go, I done an idea. And I'm like, aha, I found it. There's Aaron's (laughs) script, which is what she helps label that phase of of problem solving for them and I love watching that because that's so much more generalizable and translatable and helps create more connections for people who either don't have the time or the training to slow down and understand what that alert posture and initiation looks like right but when they say oh, I have an idea everyone understands that so it's it's really cool to be able to watch that and to help that grow it's really it's really an honor Like when you see these kids start to do this, it'll make you cry happy tears just thinking about it because it's just such a enriching experience to be able to see them share their world for the first time with someone who truly gets it and then be able to tell someone else about it. Like it's
2: just Mm -hmm. such a great job we have, you guys. (laughs) Do you guys have any questions? Oh, thank you. Don't make us cry. Yeah. If you have any questions,
3: we're happy to answer them or you can also email both of us.
2: Yeah, we answer, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk Thursday about really how do we analyze a task to better understand what we're actually asking a child to do so that they can be as successful as possible. And, we can really find that, that joy will give more like examples on Thursday too. Cause a lot of this is, um, it's hard when you can't see it exactly. We're also, if you guys are at ASHA, Karen and I will be at ASHA, we'll be, um, talking about embodied cognition, which is very in parallel with what we've talked about today. So. Yeah. Training on PD. What do you PD? Am I missing that?
3: We're doing this live again on Thursday and then they will be published later on the podcast.
2: hmm Oh, don't forget. Yumi will be mad at me if I don't say this. Don't forget if you want credit for like this live presentation, make sure you log on to your speech therapy PD account at before the end of the day today and complete the quiz you can get live credit. Otherwise it won't I know we need a certain number of some people need a certain number of live lectures. So the quiz will be on there. Just make sure you complete that and then you'll get credit for that. Thank you all for coming. We really appreciate it. I know um everybody is very busy and it's the end of the day and what colors? Yeah. yeah yeah the
3: racing and towers building tools uh, the marble run stuff that kind of thing is a fantastic way to use visual repetition and change with like colors swapping out things testing to see if objects will fit on the track or not on the track it's such that so much mm-hmm. can be worked into that specific research articles or resources that you can specify for you. Yes. Iverson is a great researcher. If you can find anything written by her, that would be great. She put out an article in 2010. It's like a 35 page article that really it's huge, but it's such a like, take it chunk by chunk. Um, it's so rich with the parallels between, um, motor and physical development. And that. Let me find the title of that article really fast because I don't have it written down. I have it saved somewhere. Let me go find
2: and it. honestly, we're just grateful because it's nice to have like-minded. What is Iverson's first name? It's mm. a great question. Uh, it's J-M,
3: J-M. I can't remember. We just keep our
2: <laughs> Iverson. I want to say Joan, but that's Joan Arvidson. So I don't, I think I just... Uh... The, the, here, just I'll call her Queen Iverson. We should call her yeah. Queen. queen, But we're just grateful to have people taking like we know that everybody is so busy and you no one has time to, you know, do all these things. So we're just grateful to be able to have people that are taking the time to learn and develop their practice because in these resources are so helpful when parents say like, you're just playing with my kid or why aren't you doing because there was this mindset like we have to do work we're here to do work. We need to work on this and that's not even how kids are going to learn the best. So.
3: No, her name is Jana, not Molly. Jana. Jana, Jana Iverson. I no. just
2: Oops.
3: Yeah, you weren't too far off. I just put the two article citations of two articles I would highly recommend. One of them is by Iverson about relationship between motor development and language development. Aaron and I have probably ripped that article to shreds at this point because we keep going back and forth to it. It's a really well-written synopsis of a bunch of literature from 2010. And then the other one is more recent. It's um, Theresa May Benson, Relationship Between Narrative Language Skills and Ideational Praxis in Children. That's a really good um, quick little article about ideational praxis and how it reflects in their language skills. So those two are really excellent. If you want more references, you're welcome to email us. Mm -hmm. We have presented on some of this stuff at different conferences. So we kind of have a a long list of references we can send you if if you want more than those two.
2: Any other questions? Thanks for sticking with us. But yeah, just email us if you have any questions. And hopefully we'll see you guys on Thursday. Oh, that's my
3: old email address, Yumi. Don't use that one. I don't have, to, I don't really use
2: it anymore. I'll put my new one in here. She's on it, though. Just- oh, thanks, Yumi. Yeah, just email us. And and if you come to ASHA, come stop by. I'll make Karen be at the speech therapy PD booth. I'm just- I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll, I'd rather sit there and talk to you guys
3: than wander around and try and awkwardly talk to other people.
2: Have a great Tuesday. I can't believe. Yes, booth, booth 721. I I was like, I'm sleeping. So we'll be there. Michelle will be there. It's going to be great. And come, I think our lectures are like 8 a.m. on Saturday. So don't have too much fun on Friday. Come (laughs)
3: Saturday morning. Article citation is not in the chat. Hmm. Oh, you sent it to, you didn't send it to everybody. Oh, shoot. It went to the hosts and the panelists instead of everyone.
2: We'll get it. Thank you for letting us know. Technology. Also, wait, fun fact. Fun fact. In Cincinnati, they have the biggest Oktoberfest in the nation. Comparative, like the second biggest from the real Oktoberfest. This is happening this weekend. And they also have the biggest chicken dance. They make everybody do the chicken dance together. It's apparently like a world record. So I don't know where I moved, but that's what I learned today. (laughs) The only time I've
3: ever done the chicken dance is with like a pair of rollerblades
2: on. (laughs) Well, you guys have a great night and we will see you all Thursday.
0: Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance?